Hello, and welcome to Special Issue, Wiley's podcast about all things society publishing. I'm Maria Sucher, Marketing and Events Manager for Partner Engagement here at Wiley, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. In this episode, we'll listen in on a panel about the future of publishing, which recently took place at the 2021 Virtual Wiley Society Executive Seminar. Our panelists include Angela Cochran, the Vice President of Publishing for the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, Jay Flynn, the Executive Vice President and General Manager of Research at Wiley, and Bill Moran, Publisher of Science Journals at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, also known as the AAAS. The experts will share their perspectives on the current publishing landscape and how organizations can adjust their practices to remain sustainable in the future. The talk today will touch on what it means to be constantly ready for change, whether it's change driven by technology, market forces, or change driven by our research community. We'll dive right in with the first question from Jay. When we talk about sustainability, sustainability, manageable transitions, sustainable futures for our organizations, how does that resonate uh, for your organization? I'll ask the same question to both of you, but maybe if we could have Bill, uh, if you could start, um, just talk to us about what sustainability means uh, in the context of your journal business at, uh, at AAAS. Sure, Jay. Um, and first, thanks. For be, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so. Your question, you you hit on uh, a number of topics that we're addressing. One is the diversification of our revenue streams. Um, You brought up meetings um, as we move to virtual and then move from virtual to hybrid, um, or how does that look? Um, The other aspect of this is looking at open access. Um, And this is, I'm sure everybody's going to be talking about this today because it affects all of us. Um, And also open science, um, the difference between those two areas. Uh, For us, sustainability really means understanding that there is no case of one size fits all. There is a need for different models, um, different models that will allow societies to be sustainable. And in particular for us, for the AAAS, the big concern is paying, well, now looking at paying for access or paying for publishing. And when we're paying for publishing, it's concerns over high ABCs that may perpetuate inequities. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum could be low ABCs that may open up the doors for predatory journals and how those being addressed as peer review may be diminished as far as quality is concerned. So there are big concerns here. And I think it's really important as we're going through this process to call out the tapestry that's out there and there's a string hanging on it right now, we pull on that too much, it unravels the whole system. We know there are flaws right now, but we really need to look at those, address those as we move into an open access environment. Some of the things that um, we're really talking about are, uh, you know, what is the future? And, and I don't think it's all that far off, but what is the future of adult learning? What is the future of how content is being consumed? Moving beyond um, sort of our standard journal formats and really thinking, um, doing a, a super deep dive into um, this this digital transformation and how people want to consume the content. To me, that's vitally important for bringing in new audiences. And what we need to be focusing on 
is providing value to um, the younger generation of researchers. And then the other piece of that with the with more and more of our content becoming open access is to, um, you know, think about how uh, what kind of new member benefit for ASCO members can be sort of baked into our journal publications. And then I think the, the last piece is um, financially thinking about, you know, doing a little bit more around outside groups that are also consuming our content. So how can we work with healthcare companies and decision support models and even the finance industry in providing access to the content in a way that makes sense to them. We heard from, from both of you this topic of diversification, and you mentioned that member benefit. And clearly there's, a, there's an advertising component in, in the clinical space that is deeply important and advertisers key off of you know, your print circulations and things like that. Do you have anything you want to share about where you think this trajectory of member benefit is going and what do you think that means for print in this, in the context of sustainability? That's sort of the $64,000 question. So are there, are there tools or alternative formats that are specific to, to the member audience that we can um, move into the digital space in a way that shifts some of that advertising support from from print to digital and um, how this, you know, mailing and printing of journals affects climate change and the environment. And so thinking about, um, I guess that's sustainability in a different format, but really shifting, trying to shift some of that revenue um, that we're getting specifically because of print to the digital. And Bill, obviously in your, in your organization, you have a certain amount of clinical content, sure, but do you face some of those same issues around member benefit or or sort of the transition from legacy revenue streams like print advertising? And how are you thinking about that from an innovation and transformation perspective? Yeah, sure, Jay. Um, so similar in that um, we recognize this uh, years ago as print started to diminish that um, we had to move to, in regards to advertising, to digital formats. Um, right now, I consider banner advertising, push marketing, social media, in some ways, traditional as far as what we're doing because we've we've already moved to that direction. But the biggest piece, I would say, and it goes back to diversifying revenue streams, is looking at custom publishing. Um, how do you customize your content um, to appeal to that target group? Um, you just talked about different segments uh, between what Angela has and what we have, where we're basic research researchers, some applied. Um, but you know, it's a lot of biotech suppliers, big companies like Thermo and so on. Um, so how do you segment that though? Um, how do you go after non-traditional um, types of advertisers? And then it also leads into, well, how do you segment that with your membership? Um, we notice year on year, um, people converting over from print to digital. So that's going to continue. But the print component, small print runs, are still possibilities for custom publishing. But we don't see um, the added value as much on the print side but it's coming up as some of the options that Angela has spoken about is what are the other ways we can give value to that membership 
um, is it add-ons to the content itself, different media formats, um, Facebook Live, uh, webinars, uh, many different options to look at there. How does uh, a publication like Science survive the transition to open access with the paper flow that you have and the rejection rates that you have and where you sit in the quality pyramid? How do you guys plan for a future where uh, some substantial majority of that content is just going to have to be open because of the regulatory environment and the pressure that that's going to put on your subscription revenue? And I, and I know it's a tricky question, but I, I think it's, it's the question that when we get somebody like you on a panel, everybody wants to know the answer to it. Yeah, and uh, you'd be surprised if I sat here and go, I never heard that before, but yeah, okay. So, um, no, it's a great question. And for us, um, again, we are an open access publisher. We have science advances. And we know, you know the trials and tribulations of uh, being a gold open access publisher. But in, to answer your question in regards to science, uh, for quite some time now, uh, even before, the Hulja memo that came out in 2013, um, we did allow authors um, to use, or actually to self-archive the author accepted manuscript, uh, put it up on their institutional repository or their personal website. So when we started exploring, well, what is the route for our subscription journals um, and what is the best in regards to, we want to avoid high APCs. Uh, we know others, and I'm not faulting anyone because I know the difficulties and the financial constraints. But for us, aligning with our mission, we want to avoid um, the shift to the researcher, um, the researcher having to pay for this. So this allows us by you know, aligning in some ways to the rights retention strategy um, to take what we're currently doing just a little further. And we're allowing it on PubMed Central, right? So it's a author's choice of the repository. Now that's the author accepted manuscript. There is a, a piece there, Jay, just to be very clear and transparent. One, I don't encourage, unless you do your homework, um, uh, other, as you're pointing out, other journals, societies to, to take on this model unless they're, you know, they've done their homework. But the other issue here is there's a CCBY um, and the CCBY is a concern uh, I don't know if you want to address this later because that is another topic to write to really cover because I don't think the research community in particular is really aware of what that means. That's a great point and I think we, we should come back to it. Are you hearing pushback at all from libraries as you think about different options to, for example, increase advertising in your titles? We're not hearing pushback on that. Well, we are getting some um, pushback from the library community is um, concerns that we have too much free content. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, the papers over 12 months old are free to access, that we have several article types that we make free for anyone, you know, beyond just um, just having things like editorials and letters, but we um, we publish rapid communications, which are by far the most impactful papers that we get, that we that we prioritize and we streamline and we make those freely available. And so it's we, we have heard from um, more than one uh, librarian over the last year that has said, 
you know, why do I need to subscribe um, when so much of the content is already free? In your experience, do you find uh, that it's challenging for an organization of your scale to even track what's happening on the global landscape? How do you get that information? How do you sort it out and demystify it for your researchers, help them navigate through the process of funder compliance? And how do you use information to model what that means for the trajectory of your business overall? Good question. And, and I'll start first with sort of that, you know, how do we help the researchers along with, with what's changing? It's super duper hard. <laughs> and it's also something, though, that I think um, we don't necessarily want to be responsible for. So as a, as a researcher, you have um, accepted grant money and there are certain strings attached to it and how you can spend that money. Um, and we don't want to certainly make things more difficult. And we would love to be able to say, here's how we're compliant with different things, but it's changing so frequently and open to interpretation. It is, again, speaking from, from the Wiley perspective, we, we have a ton of resources that we dedicate to, to the global policy environment, but also uh, to, the, to the development of tools and infrastructure. Um, it's, it's a costly endeavor, right? It, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot to keep up with and it and it's certainly investments for us that have numbered you know well into the tens of millions of dollars just to make sure that on a global basis we're able to do some of the stuff that you were just talking about bill same question to you you know similar to angela and within AAAS, i'm very lucky um, i work closely with our policy group um, and we run listening sessions uh, we do reach out um, to listen to, and this is the other issue that really needs to be brought up is that you know, when we talk about funders, um, you know, what about the provost and what's their role in this as money starts to shift? So we're holding these listening sessions and you know, this is where we, we were realizing, well, wait a minute, early career researchers in particular, uh, because of the way uh, publishing, SDM publishing is structured, could their career advancement could struggle and suffer um, from the way it's set up. So that is a big concern. And we're having those conversations with early career researchers, with provosts. Um, and then that's in the US. If we go out, Europe, we're engaging with UKRI, Plan S, uh, the Horizon Group, EC. Um, and then the other, um, yeah, we, you know, as far as the number of submissions, the largest group right now is China. Um, and that's going to be interesting uh, to watch China because right now um, I feel they have not um, supported open access fully. We knew there was a there was a uh, supposedly a rumor that went around a couple of years ago that they were, but um, the cost would be significant. Another group that's out there that's doing a good job with this besides SSPs. Uh, coalition of society publishers. Um, they're you know, a grassroots organization that we joined uh, about a year and a half ago, and the Society of, um, of um, sorry, Coalition of Society Publishers is a nice way for you know people to come together and share this type of information and support each other. The the last one we've gotten as a funding agency, Welcome Trust, and my understanding is it's 
potentially others as well, have been looking at the annual percentage profit a publisher makes specifically from APCs. There's this price transparency discussion that's happened, um, particularly in Europe, out of uh, you know, sort of the breakdown of the component parts of an APC. And since that info might um, inform the willingness of funders to pay those APCs, uh, does anybody on the panel think it would help to openly provide that information? Um, do you think that, A, it's, it's a good idea for publishers to break down all the various categories of expense and allocate them to price? And are you worried about doing that um, as, a, as a sort of, for competitive reasons, for antitrust reasons, for any, for any other reason? So yes, uh, from clearly a business perspective as in the role of a publisher, um, I can understand that, that, you know, this, this is, um, this is, like you said, uh, what other industry where you're uh, opening up everything and um, showing numbers, um, which is very interesting, right? Um, from a legal perspective. Now, from alignment, and this is, I'm talking about for everyone here, but for alignment with AAAS and, and what we do, yes, we're a nonprofit. So it is important for us to you know, have our annual report and you can dig in and see what's going on there. But, but that's, is that really what's going to then say, okay, that makes sense. Um, I'm going to, a researcher, I'm going to um, go into science. I'm going to go into you know, the other journals, not to name names, because yeah, they're, they're, they're transparent on their pricing. Um, that to me is, a, is, is not the issue here right now. Um, I think it's again, back to the sustainability and the, I, I'm gonna give you another story. Maybe this is the best way to handle it. Um, years ago, I remember meeting with some funders and when I was told about um, high APCs and potentials for what APCs may be, um, it became, well, that's okay because, you know, to be the best, you should pay to be the best. Now, think about that for a second. And if it's a $20,000, $10,000 APC, making up numbers, and it's five papers you publish a year, that's a couple of postdocs. That's a new sequencer. So what is the impact of that? But in this mindset, it was not about the pricing. It was to be the best, you should pay for the best. Now, the inequities and everything else that goes on with that in early career is concerning because as we're moving from paying for access to paying for publishing, a lot of people are gonna be left out on that. So it's the pricing model itself. Yes, transparency, uh, you know, coming up with a fair price, market value, all of that um, is important. But without going into a granular level, I understand when there are concerns with others in pricing models, but transparency and having a fair price, sure. Okay. Angela, what's your perspective on this? And I know you follow these debates very closely, so uh, very interested to get your, your thoughts. My, con my, my problem, fundamentally is that this isn't how authors select their journals 
And so, you know, a funder could say, well, we're not going to fund it if the journal makes some arbitrary percentage of profit. And, you know, we've yet to really see what's an acceptable profit margin. <laughs> Everyone seems to be on the, okay, fine, yes, there needs to be um, some sort of profit so that um, investments can be made going forward or, um, you know, support of, um, support of the programs or um, support of other society, particularly for society journals, support of the, the mission of the organization and, and some of the other um, activities that go on at the society. But um, the question always comes down to, uh, well, what number is the right number? Is it a different number for Elsevier than it is for ASCO? Is it the same number across the board? Is it a different number for a humanities journal than a clinical oncology journal? Like what is this number that everyone is so opposed to as far as um, the profit margin? And, and to me, that's all the pricing question is. I don't think they really care how much we spend on copy editing. Um, I think they, you know, the we could not list anything and just say, here's how much we're, you know, here's what the profit is on, on each APC. But it's, again, it's not what the authors care about. We ask authors all the time, what helps you make your decision on where you're going to publish your, your you know, your research? And it's the audience, it's the impact factor, it's what's gonna do best for my career, it's what my senior, um, you know, what my, my senior colleagues have chosen for the early career researchers or they don't get a choice on where they're publishing their papers. Um, they might want to publish in a fully open access journal and they're told no all the time. Um, so what, you know, what problem is trying to be solved here, I think is the, is the question. And is it really going to change author behavior? And do we want to put ourselves in the position where, um, you know, more and more funders are, are specifically telling authors, you know, you can't publish in a journal that has an APC of it's not even an APC of over some dollar amount. It's you can't publish your paper in a journal whose APC has a profit margin of over some arbitrary percent. Jay, just to add to that, if I may. Yeah, sure. Because yeah, I think it's important that you know Angela and our AAAS and the rest of your audience. We we are a nonprofit, right? So so that money is actually going to supporting programs that are actually helping the scientific enterprise. So let's not forget that. Thanks to our fantastic speakers for a great discussion on the myriad of topics that affect our research and publishing industries. From funding to revenue diversification, APCs, OA models, and everything in between, this has been a lively and informative discussion. This podcast is just a snippet of the full panel from the November 2021 Wiley Society Executive Seminar. The full recording can be found on our Wiley Society Executive Seminar site, at wileyexecutiveseminar.com slash virtual dash events. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon. For Wiley, I'm Maria Sutcher, and you can find more episodes by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you like to listen. Be sure to stay updated with Wiley news and information on society publishing by following us on Twitter at Wiley in Research and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening, and until next time.